Good to see everybody this morning. Um, you ever notice that like some Sunday mornings when we come in, it's like there's just a lot of energy. You know, people are talking, visiting, there's lots of things. And then there's some mornings when it's kind of subdued. Did you notice this morning's kind of subdued? So I'm thinking we should probably do the Jericho March before we get started this morning. You know, it's kind of like get everybody fired up. Whoop, whoop, you know, so I'm going to pound on the pulpit shout a little bit this morning, make sure everybody stays awake and, you know, do all that kind of thing. So uh, good to see you. We are to add godliness. Now, I want to kind of qualify this because um, I want you to stay with me because you look at that and you go, well, we're to add godliness. Yeah, we're supposed to be like God. Thanks. See you next Sunday, right? And it's like, no, 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 no don't leave yet. <laughs> stay with me on this because I think this subject, godliness, is one of those subjects that sometimes we kind of assume before we really understand. And so I'm going to give you this kind of like little quiz, uh, one, uh, one, one question quiz. How many times, since we're studying the book of Romans, how many times does the word godliness show up in the book of Romans? Ten? Twenty? Five? Never. Want to know the right answer? Never. Is that amazing? The book of Romans. We just finished studying the book of Esther on Wednesday evening. And the name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. But we read that and we say God's hand is all over that book. And so when you come to the book of Romans and you think about godliness. And Brian mentioned this morning that the concept of godliness is just all through, you know. The New Testament through and through the book, and it is that concept is there, but that word godliness is it never appears. You want to know the word that does appear? <laughs> Ungodliness appears in the book of Romans, but the word godliness never appears. But the concept is clearly there. So I wanted to just tell you that, share that with you a little bit, so to kind of pique your interest a little bit, so you stay with me as we talk about godliness. So. Godliness, uh, David read to us this morning from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, and we'll talk about 1 Timothy 4 and verse 7, where Peter says we are to add godliness. And then Paul says we are to train towards godliness. But to have godliness, it requires understanding of what the scriptures are talking about, and it requires effort. So there's three points. What is godliness? The motivation for godliness. And then the result of godliness. So I'll just pull up that first point. I want to give you this illustration as we get started into this this morning. Because a lot of times in giving lessons, it's always uh, beneficial to kind of build a bridge. So here's the subject. And then you build a bridge to the people you're speaking to. So here's hopefully the bridge that kind of connects you, connects me to this subject of godliness this morning. So I read this article recently. It was in regards to another subject, but I thought I can take that and apply it to our lesson this morning. So here's the article. The article was about mountain climbers. Mountain climbers versus mountain toppers. 
Let me explain. In mountain climbing, is the goal to get to the top? Well, yeah, that's kind of the goal. To reach the summit, right? That's the goal, mountain climbing. But someone suggested, well, if the goal is just to get to the top, why don't you just take a helicopter? (laughs) And so the answer is, in mountain climbing, it's not efficiency that you're after, but rather it's conquest that you're after. Now, if you take a group of people, two groups of people, mountain climbers and mountain toppers, and you just put them on top of the mountain, and some got there by climbing up, and some got there just because they flew in on a helicopter, but they all dressed the same, they all looked the same, they all talked the same, and you say, well, which ones are the mountain climbers and which ones are the mountain toppers? Because I can't tell any difference. You know when it'll show up? Take them all and put them back down at the base of the mountain. And now say, get to the top. That's when it'll show up. Because you know what the difference is? Mountain climbers have trained. They have thought about. They have studied what it takes to climb this mountain. They have the equipment. They have the nutrition. They have everything, the skills. They have the equipment. They have everything they need. And then they apply that as they climb that mountain. You with me? Those who just arrived on a helicopter, they may look like mountain climbers. (laughs) They may talk like mountain climbers. But they're not mountain climbers. So the goal is to be able to scale the mountains. So let me ask you this question. You got any mountains that you need to climb in your life? So the article went on to say this. God could create scientists, mathematicians, athletes, musicians, carpenters, teachers, plumbers, bankers, and bulldozer drivers. But He doesn't create them. You know what he creates? He creates children. And then children grow up and they learn through a course of activity and knowledge how to become all of those things. So the writer said, God doesn't just make us like Jesus. We are spiritually born again babes in Christ and he conforms us to the image of his son. So it's discipline, it's endurance, it's patience, it's the process of trials and triumphs, success and setbacks and through that whole process we find satisfaction and reward. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7 says we are to add godliness. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 7, we are to train towards it. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 5 speaks of those who have a form of godliness, but deny its power. 
in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16 says, Great is the mystery of godliness. Why is that mystery so great? Because what Paul is saying is, you have to learn how to climb mountains. You have to learn how to become godly. It doesn't just happen. You don't just arrive. And so mystery is something that has to be revealed. And so what Paul is saying is that we learn it. And I'll save it to the end. Help me to remember. From 1 Timothy 3. Following that statement where Paul says. Great is the mystery of godliness. He will follow that up. And tell you exactly. What the mystery of godliness is. So first of all. What is godliness? So in 2 Peter. Chapter 1. Peter says that we are to add godliness. And there's probably no greater complaint, uh, complaint, (laughs) excuse me, no greater compliment that you could give to somebody to say that, well, that is really a godly person. But do we really understand what we mean by that? When Brian asked the question in class this morning, what about righteous? Does a person who just does the righteous things, that makes him righteous? I know what Brian's after. Because Paul is going to explain how a person becomes righteous. And so that's what Peter is saying, that we are to add godliness. But in order to add godliness, you've got to come to understand what godliness is. And sometimes we just look at that and we say, oh, godliness, well, that's godlikeness, right? Well, yes and no. Did you climb the mountain to get there? That's what Peter is saying. You have to add that godliness to your life do you know that a person could be a conscientious parent they could be a good employee they could be a good neighbor they could be a sunday school teacher they could be a preacher and not be a godly person the word godliness appears relatively few times actually in the new testament but the concept is there. The concept is actually taught through the entirety of the scriptures. And so Peter says to add it. Paul, as he wrote to Titus over Titus, the second chapter about verses 11 through 13, he said, the grace of God has appeared teaching us to deny ungodliness and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Deny ungodliness, but to live godly. When Paul wrote to Timothy, second chapter, he said, pray for those in authority so that we may live peaceful, quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So what Paul is suggesting, what Peter is suggesting is that godliness is not just an option. It's a privilege that God makes available to us, but also also, it's a duty for Christians. It's a command. That's what we are supposed to do. So godliness, godlikeness, is what we need to come to understand. So if you ask someone just a simple definition, what is godliness? And they'll say, well, that's being like God. 
So if that's being like God, let me ask you this question. Can you make the sun and the moon and the stars and the animals? Well, no, I don't mean like that God-likeness. So it involves character. And we have to understand that it's fundamental to our relationship with God. So let me give you this example from the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 5, and it's talking about Enoch. And we all know that Enoch is the one that God took, right? And Enoch was no more. (laughs) But it also says that Enoch walked with God. So as you think about that, and we say, oh, well, he walked with God. So he must have been doing the things that God wanted him to do, right? I told you just a minute ago, you could be a preacher and not be a godly person. So what the Hebrew writer does is he gives us some insight into Enoch. Because in Genesis it says that he walked, so he was doing the things that God wanted him to do. But now in the book of Hebrews, in the 11th chapter, it says that Enoch pleased God. Now you see that? Not only did he walk with God, the way in which he did that pleased God. So now let me give you an illustration. Y'all know as a young boy growing up on the farm, right? So my brothers are all out running around all over the country right now, so they're not here today. When I get old like them, I'm going to retire too. (laughs) You can tell them that when they get back. (laughs) We always kind of laughed and joked as we were growing up because of my dad. Our dad was, he was into, you're going to work, you know. And we would laugh and joke and we'd say, Dad taught us how to work. He just forgot to teach us how to like it. (laughs) And so sometimes he would tell us, you know, like go milk the cows or whatever it might be. And, you know, we head out the door and we got that look on our face. And sometimes he would say, and smile while you're doing it. Don't only just do it but have the right kind of attitude about it. So you see what Genesis and Hebrews is telling us about Enoch? Not only did Enoch walk with God, the Hebrew writer says he pleased God. He did the work and he had the right attitude about it. Can we see that? So 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16 mentions the mystery of godliness. And that's why I said I'm hanging on to that rest of that for just a moment. But don't you think God wants us to not only do, but he wants us to have the right kind of attitude about it. And that's what I'm saying Paul is getting to in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16. It's not only doing what God wants us to do, 
He wants us to have the right attitude about it whenever we do it. So let me add this. Godliness is a life that is focused on, centered in, motivated by, looking to God, seeking to glorify and please Him. Its attitude and its actions all rolled into one. So now, how do you get that all together? How do you get actions and attitude all rolled into one? What's the motivation? So the question is, can we work for, can we grow in our devotion and actions for God, having the right kind of attitude? Because think about this. If you have devotion, but you have no action, that's not godliness. Do you ever talk to some folks, and I say I love this, I don't really love it, it just kind of makes me chuckle when they say it. They say things like, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, right? It's like, okay. <laughs> And you talk to some folks and they'll say, you know what? Every morning I have my own personal devotion. Right? I'm devoted to the Lord. I ain't going to church, but I'm devoted to the Lord. Right? I say a prayer and I read a little scripture and do that. And, and if you do that kind of thing, don't stop. I'm not saying stop. <laughs> I'm just saying some folks do. They just stop right there. That's my devotion. And so they have devotion, but they don't carry it out with the rest of the action. And so you can't say that's a godly person because godliness includes more than that. And then sometimes you have action, but no real devotion. And that's why I'm saying that sometimes you could be a preacher even. <laughs> you got the action, but why are you doing it? Well, I'm just here for the money, right? And then, godliness is a life lived, action, devoted, proper attitude towards God. That's Enoch. That's what he's telling us. See, God, Paul doesn't say godly, but in Galatians 2, he says, the life I now live is no longer me. But it's Christ living in me. That's godliness. In Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to turn over there. I'm just going to read this to you. Philippians chapter 3, and this is exactly what Paul is describing, beginning at verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected. I'm not already sitting on the top of the mountain, is what he's saying. Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. 
Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And oftentimes people will read that and they'll think, well, he's talking about heaven. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about becoming like Jesus Christ. And if you're going to get there, you've got to climb that mountain. There's going to be challenges to that. And you've got to learn certain things. And then you've got to apply certain things. And if you're really a good mountain climber, you know what? It won't take long to figure out these mountains are tough. <laughs> You're going to run into some difficulties climbing this mountain. But when you run into them, are you going to apply the knowledge? <laughs> are you going to apply the skills in order that you might achieve the goal? That's what Paul's saying. <sighs> you know, sometimes, People will actually try to do the things God would have them to do, but for the wrong reason. Have you ever heard of anybody saying, maybe not just openly, but when you're just kind of talking one-on-one, well, my wife really wants me to go to church. Is that a good reason why to go to church? Well, it might keep you out of the doghouse, but is that really the right reason to go to church? Or, you know, my parents want me to go to church. Is that really the right reason to go to church? See, the goal is, it's that relationship with God. That's the goal. That's the motivation. To know Him. To know what He has done for you. And now I want to serve God. Can we see that? It's about that relationship. It's doing. And then being pleasing. John 14 and verse 15. Jesus said, if you love me. You will keep my commandments. That's love for, for him. Not because somebody's telling you that that's what you ought to do. So I want to kind of explain this a, a little bit to you. Devotion really has three components. And whatever you think about devotion to God, and I'm going to pull it up here in just a moment. Think of it like a triangle. And the three components are the fear of the Lord, the love of the Lord, and desire for the Lord. That's what makes up real devotion to the Lord. That's also what makes up godliness. So I'm going to show it to you. The basis of devotion to God, the basis of godliness is the fear of God and the love of God. 
And if a person loves, learns those things, guess what it results in? It results in a desire for God. And that's what God has wanted to have with us all along. He desires to be in a relationship with us. And He wants us to desire to be in a relationship with Him. So the fear of God. One writer put it this way. He said, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. But in the scriptures, the fear of God is used in a couple of different ways. There's one way in which it's used. It's like anxious dread. I'm fearful of God. Once again, using an illustration from when I was a little kid and living on the farm. I didn't always do everything my mom told me to, right? And one of the things that she might sometimes say to me, wait till your dad gets home. That would strike the fear in me. There is that kind of fear of God. Those who are not Christians ought to think about that. And the wrath of God. And the fear of God. But there's another way in which it is used. It's the reverence And it's the awe. It's the honor of God. Now let me ask you this as a child. Can a parent, can a father strike fear in their children? Well, yeah, they can. But at the same time, can that child also say, look up to them and say, when I grow up, I want to be just like him. You see that? You see that? That's fear. That's also fear. That's reverence for. That's to honor. Respect. Those who are Christians, John tells us, 1 John 4 verse 18, that perfect love casts out fear. See that? I didn't fear my dad. Like in that dreadful, it was like, oh, I knew I needed to listen. <laughs> but I also had a love respect for. That's why Paul says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We know who it is that we serve. That's why Peter says, conduct yourself with fear during the time of your stay here. In Hebrews, the Hebrew writer tells us that we have confidence to enter into the most holy place. But he also tells us, two chapters later, that our God is a consuming fire. Can you see that? It's like healthy tension. So we understand that relationship. We never get too casual with that one that we serve. But at the same time, we understand the love that He has. He has for us. That's the fear of God. And then there's the love of God. A person who has learned 
We know about the holiness of God. We know the gap that exists between the holiness of God and sinful man. But we also know the love that bridged that gap on Calvary, right? We've seen the love of God. We celebrated it this morning at the Lord's table. And so we understand that at one time we were separated from, but now we have a relationship with because of what He His Son has done for us. So the love of God and the wrath of God was summed up at Calvary. I want to read to you from Psalms 130, verses 3 and 4. The psalmist put it this way, If you, Lord should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. What do you think he's saying? If you were to just count iniquities, we have no chance. But we know because of your forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Reverenced. Honored because of who He is, what He has done for us. So those two together form the foundation. It's the fear of God and it's the love of God. That's also what drives a desire, a desire for God. In Psalms 42, verses 1 and 2, the writer says, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul pants for God, for the living God, the psalmist says. So what the psalmist is saying, he's taking the illustration of like a deer that has been on the run, and then they long for, want that drink of water. He said, my soul is, is like that. Book of Philippians, once again, beginning at chapter or chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I've already attained or already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Once again, Paul saying, that's the motivation. That's why I do the things I do. That I've got this desire for him because I know what he has done for me. The result of godliness. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. God created man in his image. In his likeness, he created them male and female in his image. And then he told them, to rule over the earth. To subdue it. 
they would serve God and God would show them how to reign over the earth. That's the way it was before sin entered in. That's the way it was. That was the relationship that God always intended to have for man or with men. Revelation chapter 21 and verses 2 and 3. It says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them, and they shall be, and he shall be their God. You see that? God created man. So that he could be in a relationship with him. And then at the close of his word, he is well dwelling with them once again. And what happens in between? It's that restoration of that fellowship. That was God's plan all the way from the beginning. Godliness takes in that whole story. That's what it's about. It's the fear of God, reverence for God. It's the love of God. It's the desire for God. So that we might be back in that relationship with Him. It's an attitude. It's an action. It's a devotion that God wants to restore that we might have. So Peter says we are to add godliness. And Paul says we are to train towards godliness. Now I'm going to read to you from 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16 where Paul says great is the mystery of godliness. Listen to what he says. I'll back up to verse 14. So Paul's writing Timothy. He says these things I write to you Though I I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, there's no disputing this. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. See what I say? Timothy, this has to be revealed. So now he gives the answer. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up to glory. As you read that, what is that? That's the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't it? He said, great is the mystery. This is what's been revealed. This is what God did through His Son. That becomes the foundation. That becomes the motivation. That becomes the desire. That's what restores the fellowship and the relationship with God. Peter says, add godliness. Train towards godliness. Great is the mystery of God." I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to extend the invitation to any and all that are here this morning.
If we can help you in any way make your relationship right with the Lord, you let us know while we together we stand and while we sing.